Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs. I have uh, Tom Reese Bishop. He's an ecologist and extraordinary lecturer at University of Pretoria, South Africa. He studies ants, so we're going to talk about his research and uh, his work. So, Tom, thanks for coming. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, tell me about your uh, work with ants. What, what got you interested in them and when? I've been interested in ants for a long time. You know, I used to have an ant farm when I was young and uh, used to go and pick up ant queens when they would fly in the summer, bring them back and put them in cups and rear them in the garden and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of fell out of it for a while. And during my school years and into university, I got really interested in genetics. And then I sort of learned that actually genetics wasn't that interesting and it was actually quite difficult and I rediscovered my love of ants at university. And I've been studying them ever since. So I'm now, as you say, a, an extraordinary lecturer and a researcher at Pretoria and also based at Liverpool in the UK. So ants have been a lifelong passion of mine. I just find them fascinating. I'm sure we're going to get into some of those details. Where are the ants? Where do the ants live that you study? Do you study tropical ones or more temperate hmm. ones? There's two scales to a lot of the work that I do. So... On the, on the one hand, I look at mountain biodiversity. So my primary field site is in the Maloti Drakensberg mountains of southern Africa. So I, specifically, I work in an area called the Sani Pass, which is a, a mountain pass that runs between South Africa and Lesotho, which is a, a country which is fully surrounded by South Africa. So the eastern border of Lesotho is this big mountain range. So I work in that area. I, I sample ants up and down that mountain range. And the aim of that is to try and understand the sort of factors that drive the distribution and the diversity of different ant species. So in that sense, I look at all the ants that are in that area. And the, uh, the main biome of that area is a grassland. So we don't get many arboreal or canopy living ants within the Maloti Drakensberg. So most of them are nesting in the soil and in the ground and the rocks, etc. So they're kind of your typical, if you like, sort of range of, of ants. But the other strand of my research takes a more global approach. So a lot of my work is what you would call macroecology or macroevolution. So macro there meaning the study of big things on, on, on big scales. So in that sense, what I try and do is I try to study all of ant diversity. So there's about 15,000 species that we've described on planet Earth. So that's a huge amount. And they all do really different things and they live in different places. So the, uh, that, this other part of my work is to try and uncover patterns at this global scale, which encompasses all kinds of ants, whether they're living in the soil or on the ground or high up in the rainforest canopy. What are the main phenotypes within an ant colony? You have workers, you have the queen. I mean, what with bees I've asked, but ants I'm not so f- familiar. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you named quite a few there. So the basic way that an ant colony is organized is, as you say, there's a queen 
and there's a worker caste. So ants are eusocial, that's E-U-S-O-C-I-A-L, or they are truly social. So the individual for ants is actually the whole colony. So we can think of the individual ants that you see running around as, as to the colony as leaves are to a tree. They are just part of the same individual. So typically within that one individual, we've got two castes, as we just mentioned, the queen who reproduces and the workers who do all of the work. So they're, they're well named. But within that worker caste, we can get a whole range of different distinctions. So one of the big ones is that we'll have workers who are sort of unornamented and look kind of average. And we'll also have soldier ants, we'll have like a soldier caste within that worker grouping. So the soldiers are often much bigger. They've got much bigger mandibles, or larger heads or longer legs. Uh, it varies depending on the species, but they tend to be specifically adapted for defending the colony. Those are the main sort of breakdowns of the different castes within a single colony. So how long do the individual ants live and how big do the colonies get? I know it depends on the species, but... Yeah, absolutely. Well, the key point there is that it does depend on the species. So this is a lot of what I'm interested in is why there's such diversity. So perhaps the ants that you'll see just walking around Texas or wherever you're based, your bog standard back garden ant, those colonies might live a couple of years and the individuals within them will live on the time scale of anything from a few months to uh, a year or so. But that's just the sort of the, the average that can vary massively. So and, and those sort of average colonies will perhaps house 100 to 1000 to a couple thousand different ant individuals. But some species like leafcutter ants. So you I think you do have some of those in southern Texas and, and throughout the rest of Central and South America. Leafcutter ants have huge colonies. So in those colonies, there can be upwards of a couple of million individuals. The queens of those leafcutter ant colonies can live anything from a few years up to potentially 29 years, which is a really long uh, lifespan for an insect in general. So these things vary. Yeah, that is. That's crazy. Yeah. Have you yeah. ever um, captured any really old ants? And how can you tell? And what have you noticed? That's a really good question. And no, I've not. So most of my actual fieldwork takes place in Africa. So we don't have leafcutter ants in Africa. So I won't be catching those really old things. But also the way to tell, well, it's, it's difficult. What you have to do is know when that colony was founded. So you are, you've either got to record when new colonies are founded and watch them as they grow, which obviously then takes a long time, or you can use techniques to date the soils in right in the core of the nest. So it's a difficult process and, and not something that I'm involved with directly in my kind of research. What, what are you trying to figure out about the ants that you're studying in particular? Well, a lot of what I try to do is to understand why different ant species are located in different places across the globe. So at the sort of small scale, so perhaps like in my, in my mountain field sites that I mentioned, I'm interested in understanding how temperature or other environmental factors drive where different ant species live. So as we climb our our mountain in, in southern Africa or in any part of the globe, what you'll see is a turnover of ant species as you climb that mountain. You'll see species A, B and C at the bottom of the mountain. And right at the top, you'll see species Z, for example. We see different species as we get higher and higher and higher 
of that mountain. So why is that? And my research and, and a whole body of research actually is showing that temperature is really the driver of that. So as things get colder, we tend to find fewer and fewer species, but they're also different ones. So what is it that is enabling these ants to live in cold places or warm places or temperatures in between? So I try and understand the actual characteristics of these different species that allows them to live in different thermal environments. So in that sense... Well, well what have you observed? Like the ants that live in the colds, they carry more fat on their bodies, they... You know, they have more hair on them. Like, what's different? Those are some really good suggestions. With fat, we don't know, and I don't think so, but the hair is a great one. So us as mammals, right, if we've got lots of hair, we can keep ourselves warm. Ants don't have so much hair, but they do need to keep themselves warm. So if you're an ectotherm or a cold-blooded organism like an ant, a key thing that you can do is to change your colour or to change your body size. So in terms of colour... Pale colours and white colours, they reflect a lot of the incoming solar radiation. So if you're in a hot place and you're wearing pale clothes or you're in a pale coloured car or white car, you'll probably keep relatively cool. But if you're in a hot place wearing black clothing or you're in a black vehicle, then you'll heat up quite quickly. So the ants take advantage of this sort of biophysical effect. So what we find is that in the lowlands, in the warm lowlands, most of the ants tend to be pale in colour, so bright oranges and yellows, whereas right up in the highlands, where it's very cold, the ants in those places, they all tend to be really dark in colour to make the most of that incoming solar radiation so they can heat up quickly and get on with what they need to do. But linked to that is this effect of body size. So body size also plays a big role in how organisms in general heat up and cool down. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So if you're really, really small, you'll gain heat from your environment very quickly, but you'll also lose it very quickly. Whereas if you're large, you'll gain heat relatively slowly, but you'll also lose it relatively slowly. So we can predict as well, alongside those colour ideas, that you should be quite small in warm places and you should be large in cold places. So if you're large, you'll retain the heat that you do manage to gain from your environment. And we do see that as well. So the ants in the lowlands, where it's warm, they're pale, but they're also small. And the ants in the highlands, they're dark in colour and they also tend to be made up of large individuals or large body-sized ants. So the ants exploit these two different sort of morphological features that dictate how their bodies heat up and cool down in different environments. So that's how they exist in environments ranging from, you know, an, an average of 30 degrees Celsius uh, all the way down to like 10 or 5 degrees Celsius. They exploit these differences in, in colour and body size. Are there any ants that have uh, 
I don't know, they're segmented differently. They have hair on them. They, they have special features on their bodies. Yeah, not in terms of segmentation. So the ants, all, they're all part of the same group of insects. They're all in the same family, we call it, within, within taxonomic nomenclature. So they're all in the same family called Formicidae. So their body structures are generally quite similar. They've got a head, they've got a middle part, they've got an end part. I won't go into all the sort of specific names, but their bodies look similar. And their segmentation is broadly similar. They do vary a lot in terms of their hairs, yes. But this actually, Richard, is a major sort of outstanding area within ant biology and ecology. Why are some ants really hairy and others not at all? We don't really have a good idea. There's a few case studies where it's been hypothesized and shown that certain ant species living in the leaf litter of tropical rainforests, they use hair as a defense mechanism, as like a camouflage mechanism. So in those cases, the hair has got these little sort of spoon-shaped appendages on the end of the hair. So the hairs aren't pointy like ours are. They've got these spatula-shaped or spoon-shaped ends to them. And those shapes actually trap dirt beneath the hair against the ant cuticle, the ant skin. So that means that the ant picks up lots of dirt from the environment, it gets trapped on its body, and it looks like just a little piece of dirt, which is uh, hypothesized to be a, a camouflage mechanism. So in that case, the hairs seem to allow the ants to hide from potential predators like birds and mammals, rodents, etc. But otherwise, more broadly, when we see variation in, in ant hair, we don't really know what it's doing. Wait, so the hairs tend to trap a little what part of particles of dirt against the ants' bodies, so the ants what covered in little balls of dirt, or what would they look like? Yeah, absolutely. That they look like little balls of dirt. But this is only in a in a particular group of ants that live in tropical rainforests where this has been shown, where they've got these particular kind of hairs. So most ants don't really have those kinds of hair at all. All right, I tell you what. There's one more example where hairs are are really useful and interesting in ants that we do know about. And it is in a species within the genus Cataglyphus, and these are desert living ants. So this species lives in the Sahara Desert, and its hairs are triangular in shape. And there's been some really clever physics done looking at how light reflects off these hairs. And it's been shown that the actual sort of angles of the triangle that these hairs, the cross section of these hairs have, is sort of optimized to reflect incoming sunlight away from them. So in the Sahara Desert, where these ants forage, and they often forage at the hottest times of the day, they're using their hairs to reflect lots of incoming sunlight, and they're covered in hair. So in that case, their hairs are operating in a, in a sort of way that's very different to how we use hair as mammals, which tends to be like a, uh, as an insulation property, right? In this case, the ants are using their hair to reflect sunlight away from them. But those are really the only two sort of cases where we understand what hair is doing. Yeah, that's very strange. Any other features of the ants? Like, what do their um, their feet look like? The, you know, do they have soles of their feet? Uh, you know, how many legs will they have typically? And do the legs look any anything interesting there, again, on the foot? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so they've got their, their insects. So they all have six legs. And the feet are relatively standard as insects go they've got claws on the end and some of them well uh, well a lot of them have got little suckers on the end that they use uh, to climb up walls and rocks in their environment 
But in general, their feet aren't particularly special as far as insects go. But there are six of them. The real beauty, I think, and sort of fascination with the ants is not always in how their individual morphology varies, although it, it does vary dramatically. But it's really in how their sort of social organisation varies. So we, we touched on this a little, a little bit a few minutes ago when we were talking about, you know, the, the different castes that might live within the ant colony. So the queen, the workers and potentially soldiers or a whole different sort of subset of, of, of work castes. It's really in their social organisation that they tend to vary a heck of a lot. So we can go from one end of the spectrum, which would be the leafcutter ants, with these massive colonies, millions and millions of workers, a queen that lives for 29 years, etc. And the workers are split into a whole range of different castes. You've got soldiers, which are probably defending the leafcutter nest from vertebrate predators, rodents, for example. You've got sort of medium-sized workers who who are cutting leaves and bringing that back to the colony. And then what they do with those leaves is they grow a fungus on it. So they're basically using leaves as like a fertilizer, growing mm. the fungus, and they eat the fungus. And there's another cast as well called the minims in the leafcutter ants. And these minims, we didn't know what they did for a long, long time, but what they would do is to stand on top of the leaves that the medium-sized workers were bringing back to the nest. So we're like, what are these little tiny workers doing? Why are they just hitching a ride on the hard work of these other workers? What's their role? And it turns out what they're doing is they're defending the worker who's carrying the leaf from attack, from flying parasitic flies. So there's all this complex sort of social organisation and structure to some of the ants. But then right at the other end of the scale, we get something like uh, a genus called Plectroctina, which is one of my favourite genera. This is an African genus of, of, uh, of ants. They've got these big mandibles that they use to catch millipedes, which are their favourite prey. But they're really simple. These ants are kind of like lone wolves. There's a colony, perhaps, with 10 to 50 to 100, perhaps, workers in. Um, The queen isn't massively distinguished from the other workers. They all look kind of similar. And they just go out individually, try and catch millipedes or any other prey. And they don't massively interact with each other in complex ways like the leafcutter ants do. And then you've got everything else in between as well. Interesting. Have you looked at the uh, the microbiome of any of the ants you're studying or have you sequenced them yourself? No, no, I've not. But that is a massively active area within ant biology that I'm not massively qualified to talk about. But I understand that it's it's a rich and complex area. But most of my research is either out in the field catching ants across gradients, so mountains or across latitudinal gradients, or working with large databases trying to understand this variation in ant morphology or in ant social structure, for example, uh, across the globe. So not much of my work touches on what their microbiome looks like, although I do understand it's it's complicated. How do you find the ants when you go out to look for them? Like, How do you know where to go? <laughs> That's a really good question. One sort of great thing about ants is that they are everywhere. They're pretty much everywhere. You haven't got to look very hard. But what we do, because we want to sample across these sort of mountain gradients or these, these large spatial areas, is we use a technique called pitfall trapping. So pitfall trapping is a passive sampling technique. So we can distinguish between passive and active sampling techniques. 
active techniques are where you actually are out in the field hunting around for ants or, or using your net or whatever you're doing. But passive techniques, you just lay the trap, go away and come back at some point in the future. So they're really useful. And pitfall traps work by digging a hole in the ground and inserting a cup into that hole. And typically in our research projects, we tend to use urine sample cups. So they're all a standardized size. They come with a little lid that we can use. They're quite cheap to buy as well. So we've got all these little urine cups that we put into the ground. We half fill those with a, a mix of water and glycol, which is an antifreeze solution. And then we just leave those traps for five, six, seven days, depending on what the actual project is. And we come back at the end of that time period, take the trap out of the ground, put the lid on and take the whole thing back to the lab where we can then identify all the ants that have fallen into the trap whilst we've been away. So you think that it's like a, it's a bit of a hit and miss technique, but you consistently will find plenty of ants and lots of other invertebrates that are walking around on the ground doing their thing and they'll fall into these pitfall traps. And once they've fallen into your water and glycol solution, they can't get out. So they do die, which is sad, but at least for ants, that doesn't really impact their population so much because there's so many of them. It does allow us to get really, really good information and good data on which ants are living where on the planet and in which kinds of numbers, which ones are more common, which ones are more rare. Can you put trackers on ants? Are they miniaturized enough or are they too heavy and too big still? They are. I think they're generally too heavy and too big, but a lot of researchers do use um, little trackers and tags on a couple of species that are bred in the lab. And often with those studies, the goal is to try to understand that these sort of quite in-depth social interactions among different ant individuals. So for example, researchers can put these tiny tags on these ants, but they're still quite big relative to the ant, which is part of the problem. So you have to have quite, you have to have, uh, be doing this on, on certain ant species that don't really mind being messed around or, or carrying these tags. And researchers can understand when ants are leaving the colony, when they're coming back, which ones are sort of interacting with each other, et cetera, et cetera. And that often goes hand in hand with little, I'm not sure what they're called, but these little electronic gateways that record which tags are going in and out of the colony at particular times. But that's quite like a lab-based technique. In the wild, it would be amazing to put tags on ants. But I think the problem is that we would never get them back. Chances of sort of finding that same individual again are so vanishingly small in a wild landscape that we'd just be throwing money effectively uh, into the ground and never getting it back and never getting any information on, on that ant where it's been and, and uh, how far it's been walking and all that kind of stuff, which would be a fantastic information to know. It's just almost impossible to try and do that. Well, why couldn't you um, have like kind of a fluorescent paint and you just touch you know the butt of the ant and get a small dot of paint on it you know that you could use fluorescence to track maybe yeah do something like that yeah that is a great idea and it has been used and it is used very frequently in lab studies so when you're in the lab and you've got a single colony there and you're again like so perhaps trying to understand all those in-depth social interactions that the ants have who's coming who's going who's doing what then painting uh, the abdomen of the ants can really help and you can identify and re-identify individuals by doing that. But again, in the field, that's a difficult thing to do. So that paint will rub off or the ants will try and peel it off each other and themselves. 
uh, in the wild. And the problem is that in the wild, like, which colony are you looking at? It's actually quite a difficult thing to try and understand, right, here's some ants. They're walking around, I can see them, and they're going back to some hole in the ground. And are they a different colony? It's actually a, quite a difficult question to answer. So you're not really sure like, who's who and who's going where. And on top of that, there's this issue of paint just falling off in this natural setting. So it's, it's a really cool idea. And I think that, you know, someone cleverer than me will think up some way of, of doing conceptually similar things to what you were suggesting there that are currently used in the lab, but out in the wild. It's, it's that transition from the lab to the wild, which is this big problem. I guess with, with many things mm. in biology. I don't know, do ants have any special abilities, the ones that you study? Any amazing things that they do physically that you're surprised about? Yeah, well, as I said, a lot of my work is about is about temperature and how they respond to that. So I mentioned all those things about colour and body size, but also some of my work looks at their uh, how these ants physiologically cope with different temperatures. So without respect to their colour or their body size and about solar radiation, just how hot or how cold can these different species of ants handle it? And most of them are kind of average. They can't deal with particularly hot temperatures and they can't deal with particularly cold temperatures, but some of them are these real thermal specialists. So it amazes me in the places that I work in Southern Africa, on top of these mountains, so these are sort of 3,000 metres above sea level, so they're relatively high, and we have about seven, eight ant species that, that live up there and specialise and they can handle temperatures below freezing. So down to minus one, minus two. And so I find that amazing that they can do that as these ectothermic organisms, these cold-blooded animals that are so small that they can actually handle those cold temperatures for a decent amount of time, a few minutes at least, which if they're caught out in that temperature in the wild in a, a cold snap or sudden snowfall, then they'll probably be able to get back to their nest. So it's a really important survival strategy. So for me, that, that extreme temperature tolerance, either those low temperatures or the other end, these really high temperatures, uh, really fascinates and amazes me how they can do that. Yeah, so the temperature range you've seen ants able to live in is about, what, 40 degrees C difference? Yeah. From, yeah, you know, a, zero or minus one to 40 C, essentially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, a good approximation. So you've got you know, you've got things poking out at either end, but for the majority of ant diversity, that's kind of where they're happy. A lot of them have got a, a narrower thermal range than that, but they'll all be placed within that window somewhere. And then you've got some extreme ones like the mountain ants that I study that are coming down and able to survive below zero. And you've got those ones that I mentioned earlier in the Sahara, which are out in, you know, 45, 50, 55 degrees C and are still doing okay at least for a short amount of time. And then they can go back to the nest and, and cool down. But yeah, that, that's how high are the mountains. Yeah, how high are the mountains that you catch the ants in and are any living in, in places high enough where the oxygen content's lower? And so the mountains that I studied them in range from sea level up to 3,000 metres, which for somebody from the UK, uh, that is really high. So, I mean, I think the highest peak in the UK is something above 1,000 kilometres. So here, so in Southern Africa, I'm working at 3,000 meters. So it gets really cold. But I don't think the, the partial pressure of oxygen changes enough to be affecting the ants at that level, or at least that we can detect, although it, it does influence humans. 
it's pretty high, but we think it's really temperature that, that limits ants and other small things in these, in these high elevation environments, not so much the changes in atmospheric pressure and, and oxygen content, etc. How many different uh, species do you think there are in the areas you look? Yeah. So in the, where, where I work, in this single valley in the Drakensberg Mountains of southern Africa, there's 92 species of ants. But in the United Kingdom, where I am now, on the entire island of Great Britain, so England, Scotland and Wales, there's 43, 44 ant species, depending on, on how you count them. So there's almost double, well, it's just over double in a single valley in South Africa. But globally, we estimate that there's around 15,000 that have been scientifically described, but we think there's another 15,000 at least that have not yet been described. So those species are either sitting away in museum drawers, waiting for somebody to describe them, or they're still out there in the wild. So there's potentially 30,000 species of ants across the entire globe. Are there any uh, ants' abilities? You know, we talked about their bodies, but what about their abilities that uh, really surprise you? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I'm just trying to pick through and think of some really interesting ones. One of my favorite groups of ants uh, is this genus called Ecophila. So Ecophila lives, there's two species. One of them lives in Africa and one lives in Southeast Asia. And Ecophila live in the canopies of rainforests but they don't make a nest in the typical way that ants do. So they don't have um, a queen that digs a hole in the ground, you know, builds some chambers, et cetera, et cetera, like the typical ant nest that you might see if you lift up a stone in your garden or something. What these ecophila ants do, or, or weaver ants they're called, that's their common name, they build their nests with inside uh, leaves up in the rainforest canopy. But specifically, They'll sort of fold leaves into sort of origami tent-like structures up in the rainforest canopy. And they glue those structures together using silk from their larvae. So they hold their larvae out like sort of glue guns almost, shake these leaves and stick them all together into these little like hanging tents up in the canopy. And they'll build loads of those. So they've not got just one little tent canopy thing hanging there. They've got a whole number of them distributed across an entire tree or a couple of trees. So their colony is sort of distributed amongst the canopy, amongst all these little leaf nests. So those ants are amazing, living in this sort of three-dimensional environment, gluing their their homes together, using the sort of silk of their young, uh, and they're highly aggressive as well. So they'll defend this three-dimensional area in the canopy that they've claimed their territory they'll defend it really really aggressively so if you find these ants in the wild they'll be spraying formic acid at you they'll be opening their mandibles they'll try and bite they'll attack so they're really really vigorous trying to keep that territory for themselves for their exclusive use so they can harvest all of the resources that exist there they're really cool they just find that distributed nest structure which is a phenomenon we call polydomy so polydomy which is multiple houses that polydomous lifestyle that they have is just really, really interesting and cool to see in the wild. So what are you trying to figure out over the next year or two with your research? What do you think you're on the cusp of uh, figuring out? We've got some really cool stuff that is 
hopefully will be coming out this year. We're, we're just about wrapping it up where we're comparing ants from across the globe. So this is that sort of second strand of my, of my research program. So what, what we've been doing is comparing ants that have been sampled across all the different continents. And we've got information on how many ants were found in a particular place and what kind of species they were. But we also have information on what these ants look like. So we've got lots of sort of morphological measurements, if you will. So for each of those different species, and we've got about 4,000 in our data set, so it's a reasonable fraction of all the species that we've currently described. For all of those species, we've got information on how long their legs are, how big their mandibles are, uh, how broad their, their shoulders are, if, if you want to call the pronotum of an ant a shoulder, um, how long their antennae are, how big their eyes are, where the, where the eyes are positioned on the head, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've got all this rich morphological information. And this morphological information tells us a lot about how the ants live. So we've touched on some of that with the colour and the body size stuff that I mentioned earlier, but all these other morphological features do things too. So, for example, ants that live in sort of open and clean environments, so like a desert, for example, they tend to have really long legs or relatively long legs for their body size. And ants that live in sort of crowded places like the leaf litter of tropical forests or within the soil, they tend to have really short legs. There's this phenomenon where if you've got longer legs, you're able to much more efficiently move around those open environments. If, you've got, if you're living in a sort of closed environment, you need shorter legs. So the ant morphology sort of reflects where they're living and how they can live. Another example are ant mandibles or their mouthparts. So ants with short mouthparts are probably quite generalist or they might mill and, and crack open seeds. And ants with really long mandibles, they tend to be predators. So they use those long mandibles either to snap shut and capture prey or they use them to just cut apart prey that they've caught. But they need those big those big mandibles to act as big sort of canines or um, shears effectively. So all these different parts of ant morphology sort of reflect what they're doing in the environment. So we've got this information which ants are living where and also what they look like. And we can use all that to try and test these quite large ideas in biology about evolutionary and ecological convergence. Now, convergence is this phenomenon where organisms evolve to look the same, even though they've they come from completely different parts of the, the ant family tree, for example, or whatever group you're thinking about. So a good example of convergence is within mammals. There's a whole number of mammals that have got spines as defences. So we have hedgehogs, and porcupines and tenrecs and echidnas in Australasia, etc., etc., And they've all got these quite similar spine structures on their backs that they use to defend themselves from predators. But all those different animals, they're not related to each other very closely at all. They're all quite separate on the mammal family tree, but they've all converged on this idea of using spines as defences. So we're interested in asking a similar question among the ants. With all this morphological information, have the ants that have evolved in different places and are really separate from each other on the ant family tree, do they continually evolve the same kinds of morphological strategies? Do we continually see the evolution of big, big-jawed, long-legged, long-antennied ants? And do we continually see the repeated evolution of small, cryptic, 
short-legged, small-eyed, subterranean ants, for example. And hot off the press, the answer is yes, I think we do. There's about 14 different convergent groups within the ant family tree. So there's one group that focuses on living within the canopy environment, and its morphology reflects that. There's another that focuses on living within the soil, but being a sort of predaceous or having a predaceous lifestyle. There's another group that also has evolved repeatedly to live within the soil, but they're quite generalist species. And there's another one that has evolved these really long legs, and they all tend to adapt and live in and dominate these sort of quite open environments like deserts and scrublands. So we see this repeated evolution of these very similar phenotypes across the ants, even though these different species might be really distantly related from each other. So we're able to test that using these sort of global mm-hmm. data sets. Okay, well, very good. Well, Tom, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? Well, if they want to find out more about me, they can go to my website, which is tomreesbishop.com, T-O-M-R-H-Y-S-B-I-S-H-O-P. Or you can just Google Tom Bishop Ants, and I think I come up somewhere near the top. You see my smiling face on the top of your Google search. Uh, and that's how you can get hold of me. And my contact details and my sort of research program and pages are all there quite easily found. Very good. Well, Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. It's been really great to talk to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.